the story is told, and forgive me if you've heard me tell it before. I think in my records I mentioned it some ten years ago. Most people forget last week, never mind ten years ago. But anyway, the story is told of a pig and a hen who were very close friends. One day they were walking down a road and they passed a church. And outside the church was a notice board with a sign which read, Tonight at 8 p.m., ham and egg supper. Are you planning to go? The hen asked the pig. No way, the pig replied. It's okay for you. You only have to make a contribution. I have to make a personal sacrifice. And as we come to our second week in the 40 days of purpose, we focus on the first and foundational purpose for our lives, which the Bible describes by the word worship. Worship, you were planned for God's pleasure. The supreme purpose for which we were made, which we looked at last week, why on earth am I here? We are made to enjoy a relationship with the living God. And our part in that relationship our response to God, the way that we relate to God, is covered by the word worship. But for many people, worship falls into the hen category. We think that all that God expects of us is a contribution or two, or maybe three. Some of our money for a good cause, some of our time attending church for an hour or two on Sunday, singing hymns and songs with other Christians, praying and reading the Bible a little while each day, and some of our talents, doing a good deed or two. But in fact, what God asks of us is far, far more. And it falls into the pig and not the hen category. Worship involves personal sacrifice. And the evidence for this can be found in many places in the Bible, this book. And this evening I simply want to focus on just two verses found in the letter which Paul the Apostle, special messenger of Jesus Christ, wrote to the Christians in Rome. If you have a Bible you might want to turn to it. The words are also on the screen. It's in the Pew Bibles. If you need a Bible, you can grab one out of the pews. It's page 1139. 1139. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this is what we read. Therefore, I urge you, brothers in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. What does worship mean for the Christian? 
Well, Paul tells us. He urges his fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, of course. He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And then he says, this is your spiritual worship. This is your spiritual act of worship. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, the language of sacrifice has been devalued in our day. Somebody gives up a few things in order to play sport and we say, oh, he made a lot of sacrifices. But in our day, the language of sacrifice has been devalued to the hen category because very few of us have probably ever seen a real sacrifice of a live animal that is killed. I have, and it's not a very pleasant sign. But when Paul wrote this, the sacrifice of animals, not pigs, but lambs, goats, big bulls, was a familiar sight in the ancient world, especially for Jews. And if they were to worship God acceptably, the people of Israel were commanded by God to bring animals for sacrifice. Now, with that background in mind, Paul writes to people who understand this. He writes to these Christians in Rome, and he tells them, you are no longer required to bring a sacrifice, you are to be a sacrifice. These are the new requirements for worship. Don't bring a sacrifice, be a sacrifice. And unlike the sacrifices in the temple of animals that were literally killed, that were dead, he says, you Christians are to be living sacrifices. Now, strictly speaking, a living sacrifice is a contradiction in terms. But the meaning is obvious and it's very costly. Christians are to offer themselves completely to God to be used as he sees fit, dead, as it were, to self-interest. Totally available to God to be used at his disposal. And what Christians are to offer is their bodies. And notice he said, offer your bodies, this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, like living and sacrifice, bodies and spiritual don't seem to go together, do they really? But that's because we spiritualize worship. Mystical, ethereal, a state of mind we enter into when we're praying, or singing, or meditating on God's Word. But worship is more than that. It is physical and spiritual. It is lived out in what we do with our bodies, with our hands with our feet, with our eyes, with our ears, with our hearts, with our minds. Spiritual worship is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, that's the foundation. If you're still with me, and if I've conveyed in any sense how radical this is, if we understand what worship involves, our part in this relationship with God, then our natural response surely is, like the pig in the story. No way! You see, we are comfortable with a contribution, but we are scared by sacrifice. Many years ago, before he turned to hymn writing, Graham Kendrick was, uh, sang folk songs. My generation grew up on them. 
and one of them began with these words, I'd like to be a martyr if it didn't hurt too much. And offering your body as a living sacrifice sounds more like our title today should be, Worship, you were planned for God's pleasure and your pain. Yet there is no mistake, for worship means you were planned for God's pleasure and your pleasure. The shorter Westminster Catechism going way back to 1640 something, six I think it was. The first question, if you're ever catechized in your church background, doesn't happen much these days. Question, what is the chief end of man? Correct answer? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So notice, back to our verses, that they end with a promise. Then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Now I simply want in the rest of this time to help us to reach that point where we can truly say that God's will is good, pleasing and perfect. Now maybe this evening you're not yet a Christian. You've not ever made that commitment to Christ. And having heard what I've said that God requires of you, you wonder if you ever want to be one. Wow, I didn't realize it involved that much. Or maybe, perhaps for many of us here this evening, you are a Christian. And if you are ruthlessly honest with yourself, let alone anybody else, at present, for you, God's will is not good, pleasing and perfect. It seems bad, displeasing, and imperfect. So in such circumstances, can you really, without hypocrisy, worship God and celebrate the fact that you are planned for God's pleasure? I believe you can, but there is a process involved. So, look in more depth at our two verses, and I want you to recognize that the last verse, verse 2, then is a consequence of what goes before. And let me suggest simply with three words that there are three stages to spiritual worship in which we offer God our bodies as living sacrifices. The first word, the first stage, is covered by the word motivation. Why on earth would I want to offer my body to someone as a living sacrifice? Only out of love for that person. At the end of a wedding service, and I've taken many in this church, the bride and groom often exchange rings. Some of you are smiling because you know you were here in this church and I took the wedding. Do you remember what you said when you exchanged rings? The bride and then the groom, well it's actually the groom, uh, I'll get it right when I do it, I've got a wedding in two weeks. But anyway, whichever order it is, <laughs> Each of them says in turn, I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. With my body I honor you. All that I am I give to you within the love of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And then they exchange the rings 
and then I say, you may now kiss the bride, and they proceed from there. You see, in Christian marriage, that commitment in love, my body, all that I am, all that I have, is encompassed within a greater love, within the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it is in these verses. Paul says, give your bodies to God as living sacrifices. Why? Well, look what he says, in view of God's mercy. The reason for our sacrifice is in view of God's mercy. God's mercy, in fact, if you've never read the Bible, this book of Romans, the first 11 chapters of it, this is chapter 12, all the first 11 chapters are about God's mercy. Strictly in the original, it's actually plural, God's mercies. God's mercy means that God doesn't give us what we deserve. He shows mercy on us. Our rebellion against God merits the death penalty. But God showed us mercy, not only in not giving us what we did deserve, but in giving us new life, eternal life. Here's a verse from early in this book, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin, what we deserve, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's mercy. And that mercy was shown to us, not by God, not by an edict from heaven, but through Jesus, God's Son, sent from heaven. And how did he show us God's mercy? By dying the death we deserved as a sacrifice for our sin. Back in the book, chapter 3, verse 25, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. So God has shown his great love for us. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you've ever experienced that, if you've ever realized that, wow, you want to respond to it. And that's why Paul, after describing in 11 chapters all God's mercy in great detail, he then comes to chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, in view of what I've written in these previous 11 chapters, Therefore, in view of God's mercies described in these previous 11 chapters, here's the practical application. Here's the response of those who have received God's mercy. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. C.T. Studd, maybe look a funny guy in there on the picture on the screen. He was born in 1816. You may never have heard of him. But in his day, he was kind of the Michael Vaughan of cricket. He was the captain. He played cricket for Cambridge. He was an England cricketer, an outstanding athlete, and a very wealthy man from a very wealthy family. To the amazement of British society... When he finished university, he abandoned fame, he gave away absolutely all of his fortune to become a missionary. You imagine what the media would make of this today. And he was asked, why have you done this? And Stead's answer was very simple. He said this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, 
then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. It's the motto of the mission that he founded, which still goes today, WEC Mission. Now, only a person who has truly experienced the sacrifice that Jesus made for him or her would be willing to make such a sacrifice. If you're not a Christian this evening, if it's never touched your life, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you just think I'm crazy. Well, it's something that happened a long time ago. I just can't make sense of that. But if your heart has been moved, your life has been transformed, if you've ever come to that point in your life where you realize that Jesus Christ died for me, if you've ever experienced that, that song, you know, we sing, Oh, happy day! When Jesus washed my sins away. However you describe it, if you've ever been through that kind of experience, then there is a reciprocation on your part. A response. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I can make can ever be too great for me to make for Him. If you're not a Christian, then offering a body like that must seem a crazy thing this evening. But if you are a Christian... It's the only appropriate step you can take. In fact, the word spiritual in spiritual worship there has a whole variety of meanings. It can actually mean reasonable. To offer God as your body as a living sacrifice is your reasonable worship. It's the only thing that makes sense. You see, offering God your body is the sacrifice which only a Christian would make. But also, before you become a Christian, your body is not your own to sacrifice anyway. Your body is under the control of your sinful nature. But once you become a Christian, you are set free from the power of sin. And so you are free then, the prison door is open, you are free to choose what you do with your body for the very first time in your life. Maybe you didn't realize that you were under the control of your sinful nature. But the Bible says we are. We do the things we don't want to do. And the things we want to do, we don't do or can't do. And so back earlier in this letter, and I hope by the end of this you want to go home and read Romans 1-11, to this is what he says. Do, notice the practical implication. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. Romans 6 verse 13. Can you see how practical it is? Body parts. God is looking for body parts this evening. And such a sacrifice by the Christian is the only sacrifice that God can accept and will accept. For now you are cleansed from your sin. When you become a Christian, God forgives your sin. You are cleansed, you are declared right in His sight. The Bible describes you as holy. H-O-L-Y, set apart for God. And pleasing to God. That's why he says it's the only sacrifice God will accept. Holy and pleasing to God. God will not accept impure sacrifices. So spiritual worship means responding to God's mercy by offering your body to Him as a living sacrifice. If you are a Christian, this is what you are urged to do. Now, notice that you are urged to do it. When you become a Christian, God doesn't just take you over like a kind of zombie and you're forced to do what God wants you to do. No, for the first time in your life, you have a choice. You are free to choose what you do with your body. 
But only as you offer your body to God, maybe you've never done that, or maybe you've taken back the offer, and we'll think about that in a moment, only as you do that and keep on doing that, will you experience that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. That's the first stage. Motivation. Responding to God's mercy. Here's the second stage. Another word you can remember. Transformation. The first stage is what we do. Offer God our bodies. The second stage is what God does when we do that. You see, once you become a Christian, you're not abstracted to some ethereal spiritual plane, let alone transferred straight into heaven. You know, kind of beam me up Scotty sort of thing, you know? Where we worship God in heaven. No, we are left on earth for a length of time and who knows how long. We, are, we live out our worship on earth in and through physical bodies in the real and physical world we inhabit. And here we find that we face a challenge, a serious problem, which is addressed in the first part of verse 2. The challenge is, don't conform. Look what he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. The word world is literally age. And it doesn't mean the physical world, it means the moral world in which we live. The world of people and society which is indifferent or hostile to God. A world that is corrupt and being corrupted. And you are to live out your life as a Christian in this hostile environment. And the great pressure is to conform to the way the world behaves. J.B. Phillips famously paraphrased this. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. How easy it is to conform to the way that the world thinks and acts. To use your bodies for the wrong purpose. To go where everyone else goes. To do what everybody else does. To watch what everyone else watches. To talk like everyone else talks. To sleep around like everybody else sleeps around. We use our bodies because we conform to the pressures of the world around us. And this, says Paul, you are not to do. Well, <laughs> that's easy to say, but very hard to do. And I don't think it's getting any easier in the world in which we live. As our society drifts further and further away from God, and the pressures to conform grow greater. And I believe it's accelerating very rapidly. So, let's be practical. If you're a Christian and struggling in this area, and if you aren't struggling, you probably aren't a Christian, or you're one who's given in altogether, how do you manage to stop the world squeezing you into its mould? Well, the answer is seen in the second half of the, what Paul says here in the sentence. Don't conform. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, notice two important things about this phrase. First of all, as we've already said, it is a passive experience. It is something that God does in us or for us. The first appeal is, I urge you to do something. Offer your bodies. That's active. The second is passive. It is be transformed. Something only God can do for us. You see, when a person becomes a Christian, most churches, given a live body, a new Christian, will start to work on the hands. Okay, now you're a Christian. This is what you're supposed to do. And... Let's start working on the feet. These are the places you should go to, and these are the ones you shouldn't go to. 
And let's have a think about the eyes. These are the things you ought to watch and see, and these are the things you ought to avoid. And what about your ears? What kind of music do you listen to? What do you do? You know, well, we better work on that as well, and so on. And that kind of imposed change is usually an external act, and it rarely lasts because most people can't manage to keep up appearances, let alone reality. But here's the interesting thing. Give God your body, and he will start to work where? In your mind. And only that will lead to real transformation. Not outward conformity, but inward transformation. To the root of all actions. Because it's in the mind that you produce real and lasting change. And only God can bring about this kind of change, because it's miraculous. It's a change of nature. The word translated transformed here is a long, one of these long Greek words. But I'll tell you what the Greek word is, because you, you probably recognize the English word. The Greek word is metamorpho, from which we get metamorphosis, or metamorphosis. I'm never sure how you say it in English. It's a change of character, a change of appearance, it's the word used, you know, when you learnt in science at school or when you get a chrysalis and it transforms into a butterfly. That's metamorphosis, isn't it? Now, interestingly, this word, this long Greek word, is found only in three places in the New Testament. Other places other than this one. Uh, two are from the same story in different Gospels, in Matthew and Mark. If you know the Bible stories, do you remember that story when Jesus took three special disciples one day, Peter, James and John, and he took them up a mountain. And while he was on top of the mountain, he was changed. We call it transfigured. Well, that's the same word. Matthew 17 says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. See what happened? There was a transformation. His face began to glow and his appearance was changed. His glory, his true nature, was now revealed. Now that's the word used in Romans 12 too. Now the other place it's used in the New Testament is very important as well. In the second letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, in chapter 3, and again, Paul refers back to a story that his Jewish readers would know about. When Moses, the great leader of Israel, he used to go to a special place to meet with God. And when he met with God in this special place, it changed him. His face began to shine. So much so that when he came out, he had to put a veil on his face to stop the people being affected by it. To protect them. And this is what he says about the new covenant. Moses brought in the old agreement, the law. What about the new agreement? Well, this is what he says, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we, who with unveiled faces, we don't have to hide from God, with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice again, it's a passive verb. The agent of change is God the Holy Spirit. And the change is not seen primarily in our faces, though I hope our faces are affected. But in our minds, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. This doesn't mean the change is limited to the mind, but it starts with the mind, and through the mind it affects the behavior. 
It is a gradual transformation. We are being changed to become more like God, changed to become more like Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the mark of a true Christian. It's the only key to real behavioural change. When I was a child, we learned a little rhyme about this. Maybe you learned it as well. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Where does it begin? It begins with the mind. It is what God does in us and through us. So let's go back. You respond to God's mercy. Let's suppose this evening, it would be great, wouldn't it, if there's someone here, you're not yet a Christian, and you hear about Jesus and you want to make that commitment to Christ. And you say to God, Lord, take my life, take my body. I want to respond to you. What does God do? Well, it will begin to work in your mind. It will begin to change your way of thinking, which will then begin to change your behavior. And if this process continues, you come back here in a year's time to Charlotte Chapel, you will be a different person. You'll be more like Jesus Christ. Your life will be more pleasing to God. Let's say there's two of you make the same commitment and you both come back a year later. It's possible that one of you will be more like Christ than the other one. What's the reason for that? Well, you see, it's not just a passive experience, it's a progressive experience. Offering your body to God is a decisive act. But the transformation that comes about is a process. It is a progressive change that takes place throughout our lives to the degree in which, day by day, we offer God our bodies as living sacrifices. Look again at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The word glory describes God's character. He says, you're being changed to become more like God day by day. And while it is the Holy Spirit who changes us, he will only do it to the limit to the degree to which we are available and commit ourselves to him and as we respond by offering our bodies daily as living sacrifices. If you withdraw the offer, if you take back your life, if you withdraw your commitment, or if you say to God, God, I offer myself to you on Sundays, but please leave the rest of the week to me. Or if you say, Lord, you can have everything in my life, but not that relationship because that's mine. then something interesting happens. The process of change comes to a halt. And in fact, you don't stay in limbo, you go back into reverse. And you become more conformed to the world. Which is why some of us are Christians, we've been Christians for years, and yet we're making very little progress in becoming like Christ. Because we're not available to God. The mark of a true Christian is that you are being transformed, changed to become more like God, more like Christ. Now when we do that, I'm trying to be as practical as I can, when we offer God our bodies, He begins to change our minds. And you know the first thing He changes your mind about? His will. His plans for you. 
So here's the third word, and I couldn't think of a better word, it's not very brilliant, but you'll know what I mean by appreciation. Then and only then do you appreciate God's will. Look at the consequence. Let's read it again and you'll get the drift. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do that. Do not conform any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, and only then, will you be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. You will prove in experience that God's will is good, pleasing and perfect. Now the words translated test and approve there is only one word in the original language. It means to try something out in practice. Let me give you an example of a place where it occurs in the New Testament. Do you remember, if you know the Gospel stories, do you remember Jesus told a parable about a wedding banquet? And all the people who were invited made excuses and said they couldn't come. Well, one of the jokers said, and there is a joke in this, if you, if you understand what Jesus was saying. One of the jokers said, I cannot come because I've bought five pair of oxen and I'm going to go and try them out. Now, the joke is that no self-respecting Jew would ever buy a five pair of oxen before trying them out first. <laughs> and that's why Jesus is saying, that is a facile excuse. Nobody would ever do that. Now, that's the same word used here. You see, there are some people who want God's will on 28-day approval. You know, like a catalogue and you can send it back if you don't fancy it. Or, Lord, send me a video of it and I'll have a think about it. No, you make the commitment and then God begins to change your mind. And if beforehand God was to tell you what his will for you is, you might say, there is no way I'm ever going to become a missionary. There is no way I'm ever going to marry that person or not marry at all. There is no way I'm going to do that career or abandon that prospect or whatever it might be that God has in mind for you. But you give God your body, it begins to change your mind, and then you say, isn't God's will great? It's good. It's perfect. It's just tailor-made for me. And it's acceptable to God and it's acceptable to me. We only prove in experience that God's will is good and pleasing and perfect when we take the step of faith by making that commitment of offering God our bodies as living sacrifices. Then and only then do we test and approve in practice what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. Now, this applies when you first become a Christian. So let me speak to those of you. It's great to see you here if you've been coming along. Maybe not, only God knows, and I don't know. I know some of you, but not, not many of you. But maybe you're not yet a Christian. And you've been hearing the story about what Jesus did and the commitment you need to make. And you're thinking to yourself, and maybe this evening it's just reinforces you thinking, wow, this is a lot bigger thing than I ever anticipated. I, I thought it was just a matter of, you know, getting along with a few Christians and coming along to church on Sunday and maybe doing a bit of Bible reading, but sacrifice. That's a big step. Yes, it is. Jesus said, count the cost before you follow me. Constantly. Don't just jump into it, because you might regret it later. But it's a step of faith. It's just going back to the marriage relationship. 
be pretty stupid if walking out the door here, somebody's going to tell me if this happened to them, but okay, but it's generally very stupid. If walking out the door here, a young man bumps into a young lady and says, Wow, I've not met you before. I think you're just the one for me. Let's get married. Well, you think the person's off the head, you know, and what they're talking about, you know? Okay, I know somebody's going to tell me it happened, but it's not a very good idea. What happens is, you see that nice person, you think, that looks a nice person. I wonder what kind of person they are. And so you go into the coffee lounge afterwards. By the way, you're invited to coffee, all the people. And this, this may happen to you, you never know. Um, <laughs> and you go to that nice young lady, and you begin to talk to her, and you think, well, she seems pretty sensible to me, and nice personality, nice smile dress as well. Hmm. Fancy a coffee this week. And so you begin to get to know them and you learn something about them. And it may go two or three weeks and you think, nah. <laughs> or she might say, no, yes, <laughs> more likely. <laughs> but the re let's say the relationship develops and the more you see, the more you like. And after some months, or maybe a year or so, you think, this is the person for me. Now, that's not blind faith. That's a commitment based on what you've learned about this person. But there has to come a step where you make a commitment and say, I'm going to stand up in this church or some other church and say, I take you as my lawfully wedded wife, forsaking all others, I give myself only to you. Now, the same thing applies with being a Christian. You learn about who God is, and you learn about His Son and what He's done for you. And some of you have done that, maybe for weeks and months now. Maybe some of you have grown up in church knowing this in Christian families. But there has to come a point of personal commitment where you say, I know enough now to respond to God's mercy and to receive Christ as my Savior and Lord and to make that commitment of offering my body to Him. Otherwise, you'll just dither along forever. You'll be a perpetual bachelor in the spiritual life. Or spin I'm not criticizing those who are single. Just follow the analogy closely. This is to do with following Christ. Now, maybe this evening you need to do that. Maybe this is, this is it. This is your spiritual marriage today. I'll give you an opportunity in a moment to pray if you'd like to do that. You know enough now. Maybe you don't know enough yet. You need to keep finding out more before you get to the point where you know enough to make the commitment. But there has to come a point of commitment. Now let me speak to those of us who are Christians. This is something we need to do again and again. Maybe you look back and you say, Yeah, I remember, Pastor, when I became a Christian. I can remember that day or maybe that period. And I committed my life to Christ. But something has gone wrong. Or something came into your life that took the place that Christ should occupy. And he were, as it were, took back your body. And I'll tell you what, if you've done that, you'll be really grumpy and upset and displeased about God's will. And you'll say, why has God allowed this to happen to me? And it's not fair. And, hmm. The test is, are you enjoying God's will? Can you honestly say, Christian, God's will for me, right at this time, is good, pleasing, and perfect? I don't mean it's easy. Sacrifice is sometimes very painful. But God's will is good, pleasing, 
and perfect. It's something you do again and again. So maybe this evening you're a Christian and you need to take that step again. To offer God your body as a living sacrifice. It's the decisive act that we make again and again. With every challenge in life that we face, that our bodies are demanded of us. That's a terrible sentence, but you know what I mean. So, let me conclude. Back to the pig and hen. They had a choice about the church supper. And you and I have a choice, even this evening, that we must make. We can, like the hen, settle for a contribution. You may go through the motions, come to church on Sunday, read the Bible occasionally. You may even fool everyone else. But only God knows our hearts and knows whether we are true worshippers, we are committed to Him. Or we can, like the pig, make a sacrifice. Now you can't blame the pig in the analogy for not attending the church supper, for it literally meant death. But we are to be living sacrifices. And you know the problem with living sacrifices? They can always jump off the altar. Offering our bodies to God as living sacrifices means trusting God completely into the day-to-day challenges of our lives. But it is the only way in which we will be transformed. And it is the only way in which you will prove that God's will is good, pleasing and perfect. And only then will we fulfill the great purpose to which God has called us. Worship. You were planned for God's pleasure. We're going to sing something together. Find a hymn book. <clears throat>